Okay, friends, I invite you to have your seats and open up in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Um, and as you're doing that, just a couple of announcements. It's a reminder that Redeemer students, uh, the next Redeemer students event for all 5th uh, through 8th graders is Friday, June 14th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Crumps for a bonfire with hot dogs and s'mores. And um, I believe the email went out. Did the email go out? about this to the families okay so and you just respond to that email uh it says by june 5 we're the email went out for uh what school you're oh okay so that's that's already taken care of then okay <laughs> any other details we need to know okay there is a chance of rain okay uh, so that is Friday, June 14th. Next Sunday is the new deacon nominees. And so the our two deacon candidates we have, Jared and Jared Crump and Paul Spica. And uh, so the vote of affirmation for all members. The cards will be available for that before the service. So what you do is just go to like the welcome table and, uh, and check in with, with Kathy there. And she'll be able to hand out the uh, ballot cards for those. And you could just fill those in and even return them back to Kathy right then uh, or... Uh, put them in the offering box and we'll collect them at the end of the, the service. And then we have um, Family Covenant Child Dedications in two weeks on the 23rd. And so uh, just a couple of exciting things uh, uh, coming up. Um, I invite you now to follow along with me as we're in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 2, and our scripture reading today will be Mark 2. Verses 1 through the end of the chapter and actually into chapter 3, verse 6. So Mark chapter 2, 1, verse uh, to Mark 3, verse 6. And if you'll follow along as I read. And when he, this is referring to Jesus... And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. 
He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but for the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it? Lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him this is the reading of god's word thanks be to god and let's pray god we we thank you for these words we thank you for this amazing man we thank you that he is not merely the greatest historical human figure on earth but that he truly is the son of god and the son of man. And we thank you for his life. That's recorded for us here. And we ask God that you would teach us. 
that your word would do what, your, uh, what only your word can do, that it can powerfully change and alter our lives. But God, we ask um, that, you would, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds, that we have hearts and minds like the good soil that is ready to receive the seed of your word and that it will grow and bear much fruit in our lives. And so help us, God, in the way that only you can. It's in Christ's mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about Jesus is that um, Jesus was uh, a really, um, that he was a really nice guy. Now, I need to be careful and say that because, of course, Jesus was a nice guy and a loving person. Um, But what I mean to say is that by uh, Jesus not being a nice guy, meaning he was not a pushover, that Jesus was, uh, when needed to be, could be very harsh with critics and he could be very uh, strong against the hard heartedness that he saw with many around him. Jesus had tremendous compassion for the broken, for the sinful, um, for the humble, the contrite. Um, but Jesus had uh, could tend to be pretty um, scandalous with those uh, who were not any of those things. This morning in our scripture passage, we've seen five encounters of Jesus that uh, show some of the scandalous side of Jesus and his ministry. The scandalous nature of, of what Jesus was doing when he was conducting his earthly ministry. So this morning, I'd like for us to kind of walk through uh, each of these scandals, and I think uh, time would not permit us to get through all five of these. I'm starting to rethink whether we'll be able to cover all five of these today. So we'll go as, uh, if that's uh, fitting for you, we'll go as far as we can, and then we will uh, uh, we'll take a pause and we'll resume next week, Lord willing. So what I want to do is look at the five scandals of Jesus here, or as many as we could get today. And uh, learn something again about his uh, authority and his power. Just to recap where we were, we've been introduced to Jesus. We have his um, ministry kind of launched with his baptism in chapter 1. Mark spoke briefly of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And then Jesus began his ministry proclaiming the gospel, calling his first disciples, healing a man with an unclean spirit. Many people were, um, his name had kind of spread throughout the region and many people were coming to be healed by Jesus. And then um, near the end of Mark chapter one, Jesus goes away privately to go pray. And when the rest of the town or village and all the surrounding areas like realized Jesus wasn't there, the disciples wasn't realized that he wasn't there. They went looking for him and said, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus said, let's go to other towns because this is why I've come. 
is to preach. And Jesus encounters a leper. And so then what ends up happening is in chapter two, you have Jesus returning now back to the town that he was in. He'd kind of gone around with his disciples to the other villages and he preached in the other towns that were there. And now Mark talks about what happened now that Jesus comes back to town. And so that's what we see here with the healing of the paralytic. Chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus returns back to Capernaum. And news had spread that Jesus was there. And so many were gathered to, to, uh, around the house. This time, there was no room, not even at the door. I mean, if you could picture, these houses were not enormous in Jesus' day. But, um, and these villages and towns were not super, super populated. They pretty substantial populations, but people lived rurally. But so many people had congregated into the city, into the town, that they'd filled the house, they'd completely almost surrounded the house, at wanting to get closer and closer to Jesus. And it's in the middle of this, as people are bringing, coming to Jesus for uh, Jesus to do healing to them. It's interesting, Mark makes this note again at the end of verse 2. And he was preaching the word to them. Again, Jesus says Jesus did healings and he did those kind of miraculous things. But Jesus main concern was that they uh, not just take care of their bodies, but to take care of their their souls. And what's interesting is in verse three. A group of people came carrying a paralytic man, so uh, four guys, four of his friends and a, carrying a paralytic man. Came to the house. They couldn't get in the house because the crowd was so, so uh, big. They decided they were going to get up. I mean, this is how desperate they were. They climbed up onto the roof of the house and was removing sections of the roof. How many of you want to host that kind of home group, right? You know, the people are ripping the roof off your house to get to Jesus. And they're actually pulling the roof off of their house and they're dropping the guy in. Now, look at what Jesus does in response to this. And notice there's, there's going to be a pattern that we'll see for all five of these kind of scandalous scenes. There's the scene. Um, there's something that Jesus does. Um, and then the scandalous part. There's a, there's a reaction from some that are around that see it. And then they ask a question. So there's the, kind of the scene. Jesus does something. There's a scandal. They ask a question and then Jesus uh, is responds to that question. That's kind of the pattern for each one of these. And so we have the scene, these guys coming into this crowded house. Um, and now we have the scandalous thing happen in Jesus response. Verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now here, when he's referring to their faith, he's obviously referring to the faith of the friends and likely the faith of the paralytic man himself. So he's probably referring to the faith of all five of them. It's not like um, the four guys believe that Jesus can do this uh, for his, their paralytic friend and the paralytic friend uh, is not sure or is passive and doesn't really care. He probably has a, a, a um, concern of meeting Jesus here too. And so Jesus speaks, he sees the faith of all five of them, and then he speaks to the man. And this is very interesting. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't heal the man. 
What Jesus does is he instead forgives the man. They bring a paralyzed man. And Jesus looks at their faith. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. I think that's fascinating. Jesus forgives his sins first. Which I think gives us one significant lesson here. Again, the healing of our bodies is a concern to Jesus because he's, all, he's often doing healings and casting out demons and, and those kinds of things. But, uh, and Jesus has compassion for bringing physical healing, and he does, even to this day, still do so. But the healing of our bodies is not our greatest problem. Sin is our greatest problem. The man ends up walking away healed, as we'll see in a moment. And that's not the best thing that happened to him in this encounter. The best thing that happened to him is that his sins are forgiven. That's pretty scandalous. And this is what causes some of the scribes who are sitting there to, um, to be scandalized by, why, by what Jesus has just done here. Notice in verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Why is this blasphemy? As they ask their question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, it should be pointed out that they are absolutely correct. God is the only one who can forgive sins. And this is why what Jesus says to them is so shocking. Notice what um, Jesus does in verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? Okay, so Jesus kind of presents a, a question here. And the, the presumed answer of that question is, well, the easier thing would be to say your sins are forgiven because you don't have a physical evidence would manifest itself, Right? Whereas if you would say to somebody, rise up, who is paralyzed, rise up and walk, and they walked, then it would be visibly evident to all those who are around uh, that Jesus actually performed this miracle, right? So the answer is, which is the harder one? The harder one is to say, you're, to stand up and walk. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? That's, that's what Jesus' point here. And so Jesus goes on to say, though, so it, it's even though it might be easier to say your sins are forgiven and harder to say, uh, take up your bed and walk. It might be easier to make a, just a pronouncement over somebody and not see any kind of manifested proof to those who are around. And uh, then it would be uh, to to say to somebody to actually perform a miracle and then have everybody witness it. That's the harder thing. Jesus uh, Jesus wants to make the point. I'm going to do the harder thing. So that you know that the easier thing is true. Notice verse 10. 
But that you may know, Jesus says, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat and go home. Jesus did the harder thing to prove to everyone that the quote unquote easier thing was true. That they did that this man's sins really and truly were forgiven. Notice what what does this show us about Jesus? It shows us that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Remember, authority, Jesus' authority as the Son of God, it was evident in chapter 1, and that theme kind of continues through into chapter 2. People are asking this question, who is this guy? What is this that he's doing, uh, that he has, that he's teaching? He doesn't teach like the scribes, he teaches as one who has authority. Who is this? And Jesus goes, I want to show you and make evident to you right now that the Son of Man, referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. And I'll do the harder thing by performing this miracle on this guy so that I could prove the, quote, easier thing. So what does that say about Jesus? That he has the authority to forgive sins. He had the authority to forgive that man's sins. And that means he has the authority to forgive us our sin. This is during Jesus' earthly ministry. He has yet to go to the cross. But even in his earthly ministry, knowing that he is going toward the cross and shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sins, he has already been given the authority to bring forgiveness of sins. So what this is teaching us about Jesus is that Jesus is God here. Right? Because who else can read other people's thoughts other than other than God? Right? Notice that in verse 6 it says this, the, the scribes were questioning in their hearts. They didn't ask these questions out loud. They were kind of saying these things in their own hearts. Again, in verse 8, Jesus points out. That what they were doing was uh, what they were that their questions and doubts about who Jesus is was happening in their hearts. Why do you question these things in your hearts? It says that Jesus even perceives that in his spirit that they were doing that. Who could do that but God alone? That's one reason uh, Jesus is God evident in here. Look at the se- a second reason. Jesus um, is a man here, but he's more than man. He is God made flesh and you add to that this truth that god alone can forgive sin so so the uh, the scribes are correct about two important things about jesus one he is a man and that god alone can forgive sins they say why does this man speak like that who could forgive sins but god alone exactly jesus is a man but he's God in human flesh and that only God alone can forgive sins. And Jesus is showing that he can too. So therefore he is not blaspheming. This is really the only part that the scribes get wrong in their hearts. He is blaspheming. If he was merely a man, he would be. He is not merely a man. So he isn't. And so what does this say about the scribes, by the way? Well, you could read the scriptures and miss the savior. 
J.C. Ryle said, what great spiritual privileges some people enjoy and yet make no use of them because they don't recognize Jesus. Jesus really is amazing. So that's the scandal of the paralytic man. And those the response of the crowd. We never saw anything like this. That's scandal number one, the forgiving of sins. Here's scandal number two, the associating with sinners. And this we see in the calling of Levi. Verse 13, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Okay, now we know this is Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And we know from Matthew's gospel that this is the disciple Matthew. Levi and Matthew, it's just two different names. Perhaps Matthew was the name that Jesus gave to, um, to Levi. And we notice that, G- that Matthew is a tax collector. And it's so important to kind of remember uh, how, how tax collectors conducted their business in, in that day. Uh, the Roman authorities trying to tax all of their subjects throughout the Roman Empire would um, hire locals to do the job. And uh, by some accounts, what they would do is they would kind of put out, like, put it open for bidding. And then people would have to bid how much money I can raise. And the, that person would win the contract. Well, then they needed to collect the money to pay what they contracted to the Roman government to pay. And then they got to keep everything else. And so it could be a pretty lucrative business because you had the power of the government to enforce the amount that people were to pay and you would pay your obligation and you just get to keep everything off the top. And so it was rife with corruption. Usually tax collector, uh, the term tax collector and sinner is almost synonymous. Tax collectors were usually greedy, very dishonest and associated with being uh, totally immoral. And it would cause them, if you, especially if they were Jewish, they would have to interact with those who uh, were ceremonially unclean. Notice that this is who Levi, he's got, a, he's got a Jewish name, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And he is a tax collector. And it, this is the one that Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. Why would Jesus call such a person as a tax collector to be his disciple? This is where the scandal comes in. Notice verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, that means the he is Jesus goes to Matthew's house. And Matthew invites many tax collectors and sinners who were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So you could picture a, a little bit of this scene. We don't know if this is immediately after this or if there's some time had passed, but Matthew had just, has decided that he, like the other disciples who left their nets, Matthew left the tax collecting booth to go and follow this man, Jesus. And his life is so changed by this Jesus. Perhaps he's, created a 
uh, a big party as kind of a farewell party. I'm not going to be a tax collector anymore. Sorry, guys, I'm changing my career. I know you've been good friends, we, uh, but I invite you to come and let's, uh, I want you to meet this guy that I'm leaving this job for. And so they have this big party. So it's basically a big sinners and tax collectors party. And so notice how the, uh, how scandalous this is by what the Pharisees say, the scribes of the Pharisees in verse 16. It says the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And here's where Jesus gives his answer. When Jesus heard it, notice again uh, how Jesus knows what's going on. Always like the, the first group, the scribes are questioning in their hearts and Jesus perceives in his spirit. Here, the question is actually verbalized and it's directed to Jesus' disciples. And Jesus catches wind of it and he comes to, to give his answer. And he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus hung around those who didn't live up to the Pharisees' uh, code of conduct. That's scandalous. The religious leaders of the day had a code of conduct for who you could or could not associate with. And Jesus broke those rules. He hung around with with harlots, as we'll see, tax collectors, uh, disreputable people. And why does Jesus do it? He says, I'm a physician. I'm coming for those who are sick. Those who are well have no need of a physician. I'm a physician of souls. And I'm coming to help those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. So Jesus associating with sinners so that he could call sinners. In other words, the sinful Uh, need mercy and forgiveness. And that's what Jesus brings. And here's the thing. Jesus actually shares the the Pharisees and the scribes assessment of the moral state of this crowd. Jesus is not condoning their behavior. Right? The, The Pharisees assessment of these people's conduct and Jesus's assessment of their conduct is correct. He doesn't say, Hey, you guys have got this all wrong. These are really, these are good people. No, he agrees that they're in a desperate and needy state. He, he uses the analogy of physician and those who are sick and they too need healing. And that's precisely what Jesus wants to give. And in order for Jesus to give that healing, to call sinners, you have to associate with them. The Pharisees wanted complete and utter separation from them and no contact with them. Jesus wanted contact with them 
And it was not approval of what they were doing. In the same way that a doctor's presence isn't an approval of sickness. That's That's the scandal. Jesus comes to call the sick. And to call the sick, you need to associate with the sick. The third one, third scene, third scandal is rejecting human traditions. And here, this is a question about fasting, verses 18 through through 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Okay, so the question here is about fasting which actually is an Old Testament requirement. And it was required of Jews uh, one time a year uh, during the Jewish New Year leading up to um, the Day of Atonement. There was that 10-day period. So there was one time of year where fasting was required. And this was a period of mourning. It was a period of prayer. It was a period of repentance and sackcloth and ashes in ancient Israel. That's the only time fasting is is actually required. But in Jesus' day, both John the Baptist and the Pharisees uh, had other times of fasting. And maybe they thought, you know what, this is a good idea. You know, there's, if fasting uh, it corresponds with the period of repentance and mourning of our sins, this could be a good thing. And so maybe they would do it at all, uh, other times throughout the year. And then over time, decade after decade or century after century, Um, those became like ingrained habits, human traditions that all of a sudden kind of turn into law. And then it not only just turns into a law, it actually turns into something that you could judge other people by, which is what the Pharisees or the people were asking this question are doing, right? Well, the disciples fast and multiple times during the year, not just during the Jewish New Year. And the Pharisees fast at multiple times, sometimes multiple times a week. And they, they're not doing it just during the Jewish New Year's. Why don't you? They ask to Jesus and his disciples. And so Jesus' response is, is kind of in three parts here. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, remember, fasting is uh, for mourning. It's for loss. It's for grief. Usually mourning of sin, but it was also done when um, others uh, were in a state of mourning. um, Basically like like a funeral. And Jesus says, you know what, this is... Uh, while the bridegroom is here, it's a party. It's not a funeral. This is a wedding, not a funeral, Jesus is saying to them. And by saying this, he's also saying that he is the groom. He is the bridegroom. And this is interesting because throughout in the Old, the Old Testament, in many places, Uh, The Messiah is referred to as the groom of Israel, the bride. Multiple times in the prophets, it speaks of 
God's relationship, the Lord God's relationship with Israel as a husband and wife relationship. Israel's wandering away into sin is described as uh, somebody who commits adultery, right? uh, Jeremiah refers, the the Lord speaking in Jeremiah chapter 31, refers to himself in speaking to Israel as your husband. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, the Lord says to Israel, because of your unfaithfulness, I issued you a decree of divorce. Multiple times in many ways, it speaks of the Lord being the husband to the wife Israel and that the Messiah was going to come and restore that relationship of husband and wife. That's the picture. So the Messiah is the groom. So what Jesus is alluding to here is he's saying, well, I'm that I'm that groom. And because I'm that groom, this is a time of celebration. This is not a time of mourning. He goes, but there will be a time of mourning, by the way. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. This is the first allusion in Mark's gospel to Jesus' death on the cross, being taken away from his disciples in the morning that will come. He gives two other parables here in verses 21 and 22. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear is made. He gives another one. And I think the point is clear in both of these. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So the idea of the one is new cloth hadn't shrunk yet. Old cloth has shrunk. When you put it on there to actually and then wash it, when the new piece will shrink, it will actually tear and ruin the garment. Wine was poured into kind of animal bladders in those days. Um, So when they would crush the grapes and pour the wine into animal bladders, it would be tied off. And as it would go through its fermentation process, it would it would swell and swell and swell and stretch the skin of that bladder. And then it would be ready to use. If you use that bladder again, the elasticity of that bladder uh, was gone. So Jesus' point here is is something new is is happening and you can't mix the old and the and the new. And so what Jesus is doing here, what's so scandalous is Jesus is rejecting the human traditions. These are the the scandals of Jesus. We have two more and I just we just ran out. I just ran out of time. But here's what I want us to to remember uh, about Jesus here. Jesus is upending the authority structures that are in place, right? It's who do we see here that's coming and asking these questions? It's the religious leaders, the scribes and and the Pharisees, the ones who actually are leading Israel astray. They're not the ones who were able to recognize the Messiah. It's the lost and the hurting and the broken are the ones who are saying, who is this guy, Jesus? 
And so Jesus, when you have, uh, when Jesus who has all authority then comes and is upsetting an entire nation that's gone wayward, it's going to result in some scandals. And that's what Jesus is, uh, happens here. We're going to see next week how Jesus does this in particular with, with the Sabbath. But for us, in the meantime, where do you stand? Where would you stand or where do you see yourself here among these crowds? Are you the one that sees what Jesus is doing and then uh, are scandalized by it? Or are you more like the crowds and are amazed by him? I hope it's the latter. With that, let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for, um, for your word. We thank you for this amazing man, Jesus. God, we thank you the love with which he shows to those who, who need him most. And who recognize their need for him. And God, I pray that everyone here this morning has a true sense of their need for Jesus. God, we pray um, against any hardness of heart like we would see from the people who are scandalized by what Jesus does. God, I pray that we have hearts that are able to receive the newness of his ministry. Help us. To not be scandalized by what Jesus does, but that we um, stand in awe of him as our Savior and as the Son of God. We ask that you would do this in our lives. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you uh, stand for our closing benediction this morning? Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.